Guys, it's time for another Minor Revelations with Drew Drogi. This is episode 14, I believe. And this week, I'm turning 40 years old. Isn't that insane? Uh, not really. We all we all age and we all grow up and do other things. And um, I've, in a lot of ways, felt 40 forever. And in other ways, I can't believe that I'm 40. I mean, that's such a like man's age. And I don't feel like a grown man at all. So it's it's very strange. Um, but I've always really enjoyed getting older in the sense that I feel like I'm more me than I've ever been. And things have gotten better. So, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me like, oh, God, is this really hard for you to turn 40? And um, it's, it's, it's been great. I mean, I actually haven't turned 40 yet, so maybe I'll, t- on Thursday, I will, uh, my, I will totally change. But by the time you hear this, I will be 40 years old. Um, and, but every phase of life has gotten better. And, um, something that my parents always said that it always gets better every, you know, and it's really been true. I mean, yeah, like things hurt. Um, you don't look as cute or whatever sometimes and hair is going and things like that. Sure. Okay. Fine. Yes. But, um, I'm very grateful to be 40 years old and getting to do what I do uh, with my life and having the life that I have that I that I haven't had for a long time that I w- that um, my 20s were really rough. And I think about like, uh, you know, every birthday I, I do think about like moving to L.A. when I was 22 and how I just did so many of the wrong things. Those 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 first 10 years of LA and your like twenties to early thirties are were, were were murder, and I'm so grateful for them because they paved the way, obviously, to what I get to do now. Um, the only good thing I did was take improv classes at the, the Groundlings and meet those people there. Because other than that, I mean, I okay, so I moved out to when I moved out to LA, um, I was spending crazy amounts of money on my first apartment. In 1999, um, I, I, I don't remember how much, but I had a roommate, a friend from college. We had a place together. We were living in Santa Monica in like a total garbage hole and spending like insane amounts of money, um, almost what I spend now for rent. So, and I had nothing um, going out to it. I was working at Pottery Barn, which which was a job that I got after like two months of unemployment. I... Um, uh, and, and, and nothing wrong with that, but I, there, if you know anything about me, like I should not be working at any sort of, of furniture, candle, home improvement sp- space. Like I should just not be there. There are people in the world who should be, who will help people. I was horribly lost there and sort of wandering around and always being written up for holding up a wall, as they would say, because I was always in my, in my head. And, you know, um, but that's, where I first worked when I when I moved out here, um, my my roommate's friend, oh, no no, my roommate's father was friends with Kevin Costner, and we went to a Kevin Costner premiere, and I thought 
it was totally appropriate to go up to Kevin Costner's agent and just be like, hi, I'm an actor and I need an agent. To which she was so awesome. Her name was J.J. Harris. I don't know if I've talked about her on here or whatever, because she was so incredibly, I mean, I had no idea at the time how incredibly generous she was to take a phone call with me and basically talk to me for an hour on the phone to be like, I am not going to be your agent. I am not the what you need. You need to take classes. You need to like calm down. Here's what you need to do. Um, and I think about that now, like the, the, I mean, I was so bold at that age to think that that's just what I do. Like to go up to a movie star's agent and be like, here's, uh, oh, hey, represent me. I have done nothing and I need your help. So I, I, I do think back about like, wow, I was really bold at the time, but I was an idiot about all kinds of things. Um, I had a, uh, producer, who, when I was working at Pottery Barn, a producer came in, and producer in giant uh, finger quotes, uh, like basically like seduced me, like took me out to dinner and did the traditional like come back to my place and watch a movie that I that I made and tried to like seduce me, and I had no idea that that was that was what was happening. And I look back and I'm like, you idiot, you know, like this guy is taking you out to dinner, and for what reason? Because you say that you're an actor. Like I just think about all the things that I did, um, and the 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 pain and the what I didn't know what I didn't know I spent thousands of dollars in these casting director workshops where you spend money to basically read scenes from dumb and dumber to a casting director who maybe hasn't done anything in forever and some of them are really great and I do I do think there is a real value in that and I did make some relationships in that but I just think about all of the 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 money that I didn't have that I was spending um Towards and and really the only good thing that I and I try to tell people now like don't spend your money except in classes and like learning like how to do this versus the business side of this that you're not even really ready for the business yet like had this agent of 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 Kevin Costner's repped me I would have had no idea how to handle that or or negotiate that um, I was like for a while like I thought I was gonna like. Because I got trolled by this modeling agency, John Robert Powers, which is the scam organization that's like basically like tells you a model. You guys like I'm not knocking myself. I'm not like a, a model. I'm not going to be a model. And in my 20s, I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was not a model. I just thought, well, he's like, oh, I I look fine. I can do this. Um, so I had this confidence uh, combined with this complete idiot idea of who I was. Um, I would, I would go through backstage magazine and I would submit for everything I could and I would audition in people's bedrooms. I would, um, I mean, the, the projects, I remember one time this guy called me in for like some student film. None of them were ever any pay. Like you won't get paid. You spend so much money in postage every week and doing this, you know, um, and I had to go in and read for this. And I was in this guy's bedroom and he was like, okay, so you're like a, a victim of a school shooting. And I just want you to just go. And I had to like improvise a dramatic moment that I was, you know, 
<laughs> the most horrible thing you can think of. Like if that was in a movie, like you'd be like, that's too much. That's too far. Uh, no, that I, I definitely did that. Um, I was cast in a play uh, when I first got here. And there was like a a guy that I recognized from commercials, like I recognized his face was directing it. And it was in some crazy theater and they cast me to play some some military general or something. And it was for a comedy, but it was like I was so horrifically miscast. And I was like, oh, uh, I'm I'm learning characters at the Groundlings. I'll just be this military general in this play. And I remember like he also had rehearsals at his house. I wasn't allowed into like proper <laughs> acting spaces and, and well until my 30s I apparently but I remember like being in his living room trying really hard to be this real military general and there was a moment where like after two or three rehearsals where the director just said um I, I have to go there's been an emergency and he left me it was just the two of us together he left me in his living room so I just got in my car and on the way home he like called me and and fired me from the play and was like I just it's just not working out because uh, of course not um so you know I, I was doing like sketch comedy in this like this like strip mall theater by this complete crazy person that was running the whole thing that named a whole theater company after his last name and would play mind games and would put us in these horrible sketches that he had written and. We had to like go to his classes and pay for his classes as well to be in his shows. So we were basically paying him so that we could be in his shows and he would get all the money. And all of that, I was like, well, this is a good opportunity um, for doing this. Um, also, like, I, thanks to the Groundlings, like I said, the only good thing that I did, which was a very good thing that I did. Um, you know, I would, I had improv groups that I was with. And I remember there was this one place and it's no longer uh, uh, around. So I, I can, I can name it. And it was called the Maskers Cabaret. And it was, it was on Third Street. I don't know what it is now. It was like a restaurant, but it was like, I remember it was like for an improv show in the, in like 2000, 2001. So over 15 years ago, tickets were like $30 to come watch an improv show. So, you know, insanely overpriced food that was just like garbage bag, like barbecue pizza bites and, you know, um, overpriced, like bad martinis, probably made with soju, but probably don't have real like vodka or gin in them. And so the whole night was like a hundred dollars if you wanted to come see a show there. And we would do shows at the Maskers Cabaret and then we wouldn't have enough people in the audience. And so we would end up paying to be in the show. And I remember thinking again, well, it's worth it. It's a good opportunity. And I remember writing a check for like $100 or maybe I don't even know how much it was for to this guy that was running it who was just ripping us off. And he was on so much coke and he was just a a shyster, like the definition of the word shyster. I mean, and, and, you know, he ran the maskers cabaret. Like you may as well just call it ripoff hut, you know, and all of it was like, it's a good opportunity. And I had a, a manager at a time who 
was always getting hammered at all of my shows and was like having my friends drive her home. And like she also worked out of her apartment, which I guess is fine, but her place was like riddled with trash and she always had a different animal that she couldn't keep alive. And like she one time like called me and was like, can I bring my dog to your show? And she's like, she's very quiet, but I have to have my dog with me at all times. And this is who was like representing me. And so, you know, uh, and, and on like a personal level, my friends were just full of drama and there were there were just so many people that were like, I, I just thought like, oh, they're a difficult person. I guess I should get to know them. And, you know, and my 30s were all about like n- like getting rid of all those people in my life. I don't have friends that like treat me like that or, or each other like that. And there's so much less drama um, for all the stuff I gripe and complain about. Like I am so much happier now. So um, I am very grateful to have made it out of all of that. And I will say without irony, it gets better um, so far. Uh, this very first week of being 40 is wonderful. So thank you, 20s and 30s. It's been real. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi. Hi. I'm here with I'm here with Guy Branham and Georgia Hardstark. How are you both? It's beautiful to be here. Um, Isn't it? Carpeted music stands are always <laughs> it's good to have around. It's nice we all have a we all have a carpeted music stand next to us that we can rub mm-hmm. ever so gently. It's comforting. It's tactile. Um it's great. Um, it's what Monday afternoon? Is that what it is? It it's is. Monday. That we're doing this dreary um, Monday. It's a very dreary Monday. It's a very cold Los Angeles afternoon. Um, what's going on? What are we? we we're all. We were talking about JetBlue earlier, <laughs> and I will say it's. It is my. And I'm not sponsored by JetBlue. No. Have nothing. We none of us are. But it is my favorite airline to fly. You brought it up, and I was just wanted to say that if I have to pick an airline, I, I like it more than Virgin. Yeah, is Virgin number two? The Virgin second? is number two. I do love flying Virgin. I love the purple lighting, oh, and yeah. I love that it's like I feel like I'm in a spaceship. Totally. But if I have to watch that goddamn Todrick Hall, <sighs> you know, hold out some safety tips. Oh my god! No, one no, more no. fucking time, I'm gonna lose my mind. Oh my god, Drew Drogi, can't you be supportive of other gay performers? <laughs> no, no, I can't, <laughs> and I won't. Oh, don't tell me you're gay, guy. I, I can't handle it. I won't. I won't. Uh, it makes me crazy. It is just the definition of of medium that makes me want to. Judge. I mean, I hate it so much. Here's my deep question about. Well, you raised a lot of issues with that last sentence there, and I'm excited about all of them. <laughs> the question that always gets to me about Todrick Hall is. Where's that costume budget coming from? Like uh, we, it's insane, right? It, yeah. Yes, and it's it's really impressive, but like the <laughs> the medium of it all, there is the weird, fascinating thing mm-hmm. about however distinguishing gay guys are. There is a way that we're just the vast majority of us just want medium and I know. anything that is a little too much or not. <laughs> I like, know, like that we. Call, it's what I'm railing against creatively all that, my life. That we still you know, call truly big gay is like. Yep. Oh my god! I know. <laughs> Baby doll, you should. I know, <laughs> I know, and like, 
I don't know. And it's like, I, and I understand the whole thing about like, we're never going to be happy either. Cause it's like, what do we want? But it's like, I don't want that. I don't want like a, a, a nun who's like contortion. Like, can, I don't know. It just, the whole thing about that video is just, it makes me angry. And the whole, the, the airline, the whole aesthetic of like everyone on the, the flight attendants are so familiar that I, that I'm like, if something were to go wrong, I'm with <laughs> these like, I mean, there was one flight and always the flight from San Francisco to LA is really bumpy because it's always, it, no matter how you, what you fly it is, because it's low to the ground in the air and going up the West Coast, it's always bumpy. But I was in one, on one flight and the, the flight attendant was like, my name's Charlie, but you guys can call me chocolate chip. Oh. And I'm like, no, I don't want to call you chocolate chip. And we're like falling through the sky. And I want to <laughs> like know that like you could at least make me comforted as right. I plunge into the or mountains. Or like whip everyone into shape if shit's going wrong. Right. Like exactly. instead of being like friendly, like be kind no. of a cunt and be exactly. like, get the fucking line Absolutely. right now. And I feel like Virgin, I mean, I feel like JetBlue on the other hand is like an adult. It feels like the old timey idea of what it like used yeah. to be to fly. I feel like I'm treated just a little bit better. There's more leg room. I'm, I'm a big person. I like to have the leg room. The snacks are great. And it's just a professional way of flying. Yeah. It's like, it's the closest thing we can get to like British air, you know, here or something like yeah. the equivalent. Well, as a fat American, um, <laughs> on a, on a virgin flight, you, you, you lose like an inch of width in, um, uh-huh. the seats. Huh. And while it's a lovely louche experience, um, like that is just a little, it's annoying. It is annoying. You know? Yeah. And it and there's just something in it that you feel a little bit it feels a little plastic. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, I'm like, you know Unsubstantial. So I'm glad we I'm glad we agree on that. We tackled it. But I would fly either of them over most other airlines. So, you know, I will between the two. It's really it's it's, you know, pretty great. <laughs> what do you um um what else do you guys have going on this week? You just fucking wrapped your TV show. Guy. I know. Congratulations, guy. That's so great. I just wrapped my TV show and my custody um, sharing uh, uh Agreement with Georgia involves me <laughs> handing Karen Kilbiarev back uh, to her and uh, saying, uh, 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 "I feel you, like you can have her now." So Karen was on your show. <laughs> yeah, Karen was uh, head writer, co-EP, Great. and one of the judges. And um, fantastic. So that was neat. Um, recording a lot of TV in two weeks. Uh, now it's over. How many did you do? Sixteen episodes. Oh Jesus. my god! In two weeks. Yeah. Okay, that's Incredible. crazy. Um, I. It's called. You can even talk. You want. You want to talk about it? it? Is called Talk Show the Game Show. It is a game show about how good you are at talk shows. <laughs> Drew Drogi is a former champion of the say, live show. I was going to say, I had the most fun live in that show that we did at Nerd Melt that one time. It was That's so cool. much fun. Thanks for coming and doing it. You were oh my really God, good. Are you kidding me? I had a, I had a blast. And normally, I, I get very nervous in like competition-based anything. I get really like, I, I, I can't. I, I just get in my head about it. But there was something about that that just... It was it was perfect. It's a great idea. It is. It is very interesting the experienced improvisers who come to the show and have a very rough time with it, and the people who just sort of like melt into it and mm-hmm. are great. Hmm. Yeah, it's and you don't. I bet it's such a specific skill set. You you don't know until you're in it whether yeah. you take to it or not. I'm sure. Now, where will it be? Where can people see it and when? Do it, you will, know it will be on True TV. Great. Where the television programs of everyone we know are now. <laughs> yes. uh, yep. Uh, yep. So that was, you know, the the 
the bad part about being on very extended cable is you have to make a lot of TV in a short period of time. Right, 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 right. Sure. But the good but part. But that's the model that everyone is under now. Like that's yeah. the story that everyone does now, and it's why. On the flip side, you can get a lot of great people because people aren't committed for an entire year on one show. They're like, oh, two weeks? I'll go do that. The, yeah, if you, know. you had taken Karen longer, I would have fucking... <laughs> I would have blown your show up. <laughs> I would have called uh, fucking True TV and be like, do you know that guy has killed people before? <laughs> <laughs> Shut it down. Oh, oh, th- that's great. Those files were sealed, Georgia. That was <laughs> part of my agreement. <laughs> that's so awesome. And do you know? Do you have an air date yet? Do you know when? Oh, or? April fifth. Oh, that's fast. But there, there is something very weird about living in this world where everybody has to have nine jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's none true. of us feel successful unless we're fucking. <laughs> none of constantly. it. We have to, we yeah. have to work constantly. Yeah, because we're all getting paid way less than uh-huh. people used to. Yeah, and it used to be that people. Well, it used to be that people would do two or three commercials a year, yeah. and they would have they would they could buy houses, you know, or people would do a pilot and they'd be good for the year, yeah. or they would do, and now we're all just one thing after another. You have to work, 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 and part of it. I, I, I would rather work harder and do more things um, so, than just do one thing a year and live off of that. Yeah. But the, the struggle is you have to hustle for everything. Yeah. So there's the there's the panic of like, okay, well, I have this job this week, but next week I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. I have a problem where like I'm constantly hustling and making up new things to do and I got to constantly... And then I remember I'm fucking lazy and I like doing nothing <laughs> and I like staying home with my cats. Right, And right. suddenly I have this full schedule and I'm like, why did I do why that? Why did I do all of that? I have a problem where I, I still think I have to say yes to everything. Yes. And I've just gotten better. It's always good at the t- first of the year for me because I, I just make myself say... Is this worth doing? Or are you going to hate yourself? It's not even like, is it worth it? Like, do you, does every, you know, sign point to no? Maybe I shouldn't do it. Yeah. Like, I'm really bad. Yeah. About, it's easy to say yes, like, two months before, and then right. you get to the day of, and you're like, oh my God, I know. Did I Why yes? did I agree to do this thing? And I'm so, because I think I've, you know, when I talked about this little in my intro just now, like, I mean, I've been out here for almost 18 years, and there was this long stretch of time where I wasn't being asked to do anything so when people started asking me to do things I was like well I have to do it I have to say yes I have to do the thing so and I'm always still genuinely touched when people ask me to do things so I I am like I want to but there are you know you just sometimes have to be like no sleep is a good thing yeah. playing with your cat's a good thing <laughs> well and also being able to focus and give proper attention to Absolutely. the stuff that really matters yeah. to you yes. or the stuff that is like yours where I, like I am a very responsible employee but I am not necessarily the most responsible when it comes to like taking care of my own stuff yeah. yes yes and um being able to be like all right stop guy because right. e- because those bad times it's always those bad times in your head right absolutely and there are times that we were like I have to write this thing and I need the creative energy um, then there's times you're like I need to unpack my suitcase and do laundry <laughs> I need to get groceries because yeah. I don't do I'm not good with self care sometimes and I I'm, I'll, I'll just be like oh well I'll be fine I don't I have this I have three hours free this day I'll sign up for 12 yeah. things no take and it takes you know, so much out of, I mean, I don't want to complain, but be like, I know. you know, just to go to one place is like, 
especially in LA, the traffic yes, is so bad that getting anywhere is like you're adding two hours to your Absolutely. life and you're going to get home and be exhausted. I recently said, like, told myself and was okay with this is that I'm going to say no to any storytelling shows. Not that I was getting a lot, but yeah. I realized I fucking hate it and I'm bad <laughs> at it. And I'm like, it was such a relief when I was like, no, I don't have to say yes to these. I'm that way with stand up shows because I don't do stand up right. and I love. You know, watching great stand up, but I I do storytelling. Yeah, so when I get up to do it, it, when I but well, thank you. But when I get to in an all stand up show and people go, oh, just come and do whatever, I will show up, and the audience is just it's more like they're just confused by yeah. the different energy, and I'm like, oh, I might talk for three minutes without getting a laugh, and that's okay with me. But is it okay with you? And then sometimes you just walk off going, that felt really yeah. not the right vibe to do yeah. this in. So yeah, it's hard because you want to be part of it and I used to do a lot more stand-up shows where I would put a wig on and be a character (laughs) and I can do that easier but now I'm like I don't want to change in a bathroom anymore (laughs) I don't want to be like I've done it way too many times so I just don't want to do it anymore I get it but I can get into a place where I've cleaned my like I've cleaned my calendar out so that I can focus on something. And then now I get to this point where I'm done with this show and it's like, oh God, am I even a stand up anymore? How do I do this? And I know that I have to like grind back at it hard, but I've completely gotten out of the rhythm. Do you? But, I'm like, you gotta terrible. do nothing now. You just yeah. filmed a fucking TV <laughs> you just show. Just a TV dude. show. Yeah. And the other thing, too, the, the, the thing that I think we all forget is that like, I, I would never think of you like I would never be like oh I haven't seen Guy on a stand-up show li- ra- lately he must not be doing it yeah. anymore Where's do you know what I mean we think that about ourselves because we're constantly in our own like what am I not doing and what are, where am I not where have I not been but the perception is no different but there's also the thing of when people get the excuse of mid-level success to mm. not do things you're right and like you see those people and you see how then four years later they don't know what they're doing with themselves right, anymore right right yep. and it is like oh god I don't want to be you know any number of human beings that I have worked for oh, absolutely. who like are still like uh, yep. a former employeress of mine sure was still telling jokes about having roommates when she had had a television program on <laughs> E for four years. Yep, wow. yep, absolutely. I know that's the thing that you know you do realize you do step out of it and yeah I know and and it's when you have to book those shows like just showing up and being like just let me try some new stuff and let yeah. me well I think the pressure to fail is so much greater when you are when you become when you're on TV because you're like people will they look at you like, wait, I thought they were funny. And you're like, you know, we're human beings and we're going to, we're going to fail. And I always, I always admire the, 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 um, the very successful people who will pop in and go, I'm just going to pop in and do a show tonight and try yeah. out new stuff. Yeah. Cause you do have to, you do have to do that. And it's, it, it's the balance. I don't think you ever know the right answer to that, but. Oh, I fucked up that last storytelling show I did so hard. Oh, God. I just fucking blew it. How did you, though? But you seem like you'd be so great at doing that. Thank I don't you. Understand. I'm not. I just get nervous. Lot, alone. In front of an audience. Alone. alone in front of an audience makes me nervous. Not uh-huh. when I'm on stage with someone else, it's fine. But, like, man, I fucked it up. And I'm, I was like, I don't have to do this anymore. My question for live My Favorite Murders is. Do you because that's not like a structure or a trope that we know the way that like doing storytelling or stand up mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. A- and it's not like you can open mic stories about murder or whatever. <laughs> L- like, well, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, what has how many live shows have you guys done now? I think we've only done three or f- we've only done like four. Yeah, and like, 
basically what have you learned from them and are you excited for the tour because yeah I'm, I'm learning a lot because yeah. I haven't done this and Karen is really helping me because she's done it for so long and she's given me some really great tips uh-huh. and my husband Vince will be there and he he's good at softly giving me tips and advice yeah. without mm-hmm. telling me that I fucking blew it but <laughs> yeah but it's yeah I just it's really scary being in front of that many people but yeah. they're also so fucking nice that it it it's exciting. Well, and it's like it's such a captivating show to begin with. I know that I've like the one live show I went to was really really good, but it is that thing of like figuring out rhythms and energy is just yeah it's hard. Well, like, well, I, like I just po- like live Karen. podcast in general is so much different from when you're right here with you know in yeah. this in this padded room that we're in. You know when you have people there. The thing that uh, that I that has always helped me though, and and I have to remind myself constantly is that like, especially when people are like are coming to see a, you know your live show, they're fans and they want a good show. Mm-hmm. Like I I still live in that space of like they're out there judging and they're they're hating and, and they're like they didn't no, come for me. It's the the opposite. Like you have to think like no, they only want it to be the best show ever. Yeah. They want it to be the most special thing that only they get to experience. So they're willing. You to be good, yeah. like you know, as opposed to trying to point out what's not good about what we're doing. Tell me about Casita del Campo because it seems on the one hand that like those are people showing up for what they know they're showing up for, uh-huh. but also it seems like those are cat- could be catty faggots. You it, know, it's both. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. both. Um, I will say it is my favorite place to perform in LA. Yeah, um, because they, the sheer the, amount of cheese they put on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> that queso, those those ethanol margaritas that get people so <laughs> hospital drunk. I, love I mean that it place. is without fail I have a someone it was two or three people every time I do a show there who will email me or or text me the next day and go, I am so sorry. I got so drunk at your show I have Hospital no idea. drunk is the best yeah. idea. <laughs> I think I stole that from Edie Patterson but years ago. She said something about being hospital drunk and I think it's the greatest. Um uh it is because the margaritas are insanely strong and you go down there there's a there's a witchy magic that happens in that basement where the as a performer there's such a freedom like i've never once even i mean we we when we do the golden girls down there we do two episodes word for word and it is it is really hard and we put it together in a couple days uh-huh. and we throw it together and it's exhausting and like we do costume changes and we do and it is like i lose my mind Yet, when, once we walk out on stage, I have zero fear because I'm like, the p- audience is only there to love this. Because our, we, we really try to do, um, you know, we try to be right by that. We're, our goal is never to fuck up. Our goal is never to be like, well, who, who cares? But you do have that, that energy there where, whereas like from my, background with the groundlings and even at UCB at sometimes but not so much but the groundlings which is such incredible training the pressure is so hard it's because you're being judged every time mm-hmm. until you're in that main company so you're you know you're so worried about your material and if it doesn't go well it's not just like oh the audience didn't laugh at you it's like oh you can get cut for that like yeah. it could and so you feel like the stakes are so much higher than they really are. Like, you know, um, and when I go watch shows at the Groundlings, I'm only there to laugh at them and enjoy them. And I, again, like, I want to enjoy them. But you feel, when you're performing, you, you, you feel a real pressure. Whereas a casita, you're just like, who cares? So it's, it is, it's such a, it's such a relief to go down there. Now, it is also 
um, they have gotten much better. They've they've recarpeted it down there. But there was a time where I was convinced there was black mold down there, and I was like, I was going to be the Aaron Brockovich of L.A. Silver Lake Basement Theater because I was going to be like, I'm whistleblowing this place out because I would go down. Every one of us would talk about. We would go down there and we would we would be there for an hour and start coughing uncontrollably, oh my or my voice would go. I would lose my voice, and I'm like, I don't understand. What this what this is, but yeah, it, it's it's. Um, I can't it's help really but fun. think of a fire hazard when I go down there. Like oh. if there was a fire, we'd all. Oh, die. we're done. The questionable legality of that space is, is <laughs> oh. one of the greatest recommendations of it. Yeah. Like you feel <laughs> like you're on the like it gives you a little bit of that Lower East Side like basement theater yeah. feel. Well, and it's you know for because I've talked about it a lot on the show, but if you guys who are people listening who don't know it, it's a Mexican restaurant in Silver Lake that has a 70 seat basement in the in the. Um, a 70 seat theater in the basement that's what I'm trying to say and I perform there a lot and and it is it, it is one of those best kept secrets that like you don't really know about until you're really in Silver Lake and people talk about it yeah and Karen like, brought me to my first show there actually um, Jackie Beat okay so you Jackie so Beat so amazing who well, you know yeah of course who does all that and it's one of the few places in LA if not the only place maybe the Groundlings is the same way where people just go and have no idea what they're going yeah. to see you know they're like they will go have dinner there and they go let's just go downstairs and watch Dude, whatever's here crab enchiladas you know oh I know <laughs> are you kidding the greatest Ooh. So I want to hear some stories or, or tell me some things. Who who wants to? Um, Hi, you want to go first? You want me to go first? first. Okay. Go, okay. What okay. sort of what sort of things are we supposed to tell you, Drew? Anything, anything that you just have not really talked about till you you want to like throw up. I mean, oh. anything. So my dad died a year ago on the third, and I was in the middle of shooting stuff, and I completely forgot about it. Uh, and then I like realized that uh, this the, year, the anniversary, you forgot about. Yeah, it was the first anniversary, and I called the Super Bowl made me realize it but it wow. was um weird because l- not unlike a lot of gay guys i my, like my dad was a construction worker we don't have we didn't have um a great relationship uh-huh so uh-huh. there where and where was he he was in rural northern california about okay. an hour north of sacramento okay um and he, he was like head of facilities and custodians for a school district and he mm-hmm. went to like some sort of training thing in the morning and he just had a heart attack and he was like wow. 64 wow. wow and uh it's the weirdness of like um there are ways that my relationship is, is better with him now then i get that completely i mean i not to turn this all around to my story but i also lost my dad in uh also in january um 13 years ago Uh um and uh we were really close but but um it was yes my memory of it it's like i i only remember all the great stuff and like in a, in a way and like have um, and then this year because I was also really busy uh, uh, January 14th is our anniversary uh-huh. of his death and my uh, it's usually I usually wake up thinking about it like it just hits me and I go oh it's January 14th but uh, this year I totally I've been so busy and I forgot and I got yeah. a text from my brother who texted my mom and me and it's been 13 years so it used to be like it, you know it's one of those anniversaries that is still weird and you know but it gets it it does get a, a lot less I mean it's not like you know it's his birthday is always a bigger 
bigger deal than yeah. this. The first one must be hard, though, especially if you're like, didn't like skipped it. Yeah, right. I, would, I, I know. know that my, I'm I wondering, would feel... like, yeah, but I wonder if that's like something and you're like protecting you from because it's like I don't know or I mean, like, like if he knew you were doing you forgot because you were filming your fucking own TV show I know I think he'd be proud he wouldn't be proud that I had a TV show <laughs> he would be proud that I was working so hard I forgot emotional things <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny then it was supposed to happen then that's how you yeah. honored him yes yes but isn't it do you did you have parents that were like that valued hard work over anything else yeah and that is like because they were both sort of like working class people and didn't Mm -hmm. really understand a lot of the things that i was into i it's so easy for me to see these kids with like city parents who understand what they do or like who went to nyu and got a Mm -hmm. nice uh screenwriting degree and be like oh them but it was it's (laughs) only within the past year really that i've and it was not long before he died, and I did say it to him. I realized, like, the extent to which my parents sort of, like, drilled me on hard work yes. has has yeah. made, has been such a benefit to me. Yes. You know? Yeah. Same here. Like, I um, I get, I, I, I go through these periods where I get really irritated when my mom, because every time now I'll call with good news, my mom's response is usually like, well, good, you've been working so hard, you deserve it. And I'm like... God, just say you're so good. You know, I want them to say you're so talented. And that's the part of the thing that... But to my mom... The the hard work is way more of uh, like the accomplishment is that I've worked so hard. And I think too, like, you know, we sort of... We we come to... um, we have this weird relationship with hard work because because creatively it's like it's like don't work so hard don't try so much that thing where we all know people in this business that have just that that only work hard that aren't talented right. you know and we go oh they're working so hard they're trying too much give it up do something else that like, you know follow you know and so i but i i've developed this like lack of respect for hard work which i don't think is right i mean i think it's good i mean i agree with you it's like i think hard work is so um so commendable and it's something that people who grow up with a lot of money or connections or an ease into it um are, are almost done no favors in that way because they are not told to work hard they are not and they are just told like oh we'll just call our friend and get on a show or have an example of what working hard can get you exactly. or not get you know not working yeah. hard can get you and there's the weird there's the weird difference between hard work and hard hustle because there are so many like especially millennials who come into comedy mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and are like pure hustle yeah and like yep. you respect that because it's a little bit like god if i had been more like that when i was 28 what would have happened they you work s- their fucking asses off I yeah. mean, maybe you don't like what they do yeah but, but they're not, but they're those usually aren't the kids who are hitting every open mic and right. doing everything they can to get really good at what they do well they think about it's it's something that um and i'm going to botch the quote but steve martin was was quoted at somewhere was talking about people he he was saying that people ask him how do you, you know, how do you make it? How do you do it? What's advice? What advice do you have? 
And he was like, the answer that I give is never the one that people want to hear. (laughs) They want to hear, here's how you get an agent. Here's how you get seen. Here's do A, B, and C, and then D will happen. And he's like, the reality is, is just be so good that they have to hire you. Right. That that you are the one that they have to. And it's, he's like, people don't want to hear that because they want to think, it's about like the mechanics of doing this thing, doing this thing, doing this thing. And all of those things are equally important. And you can't just be like talented on a cloud somewhere, like waiting for someone to come find you. You do have to do it. But I do think too, like making your, I mean, making your own stuff and getting it out there is the most important thing. And then wor- and worrying about like who sees it and when is less important because that happens on its own and it happens differently for different people at different times and some people hit when they're you know 20 years old and right out of school and some people hit when they're in their you know late 60s and that's their thing or whatever like it doesn't like there's no there's no formula the amazing thing about My Favorite Murder is that the two of you were very experienced performers who had like worked in a bunch of stuff and you just like started this thing because you liked it and you loved it and then the response was like immediate and overwhelming yeah mm-hmm. it's crazy mm-hmm. I mean it's the thing of like you never know what it's gonna be right you never you like really the first don't. the reason I got into any kind of performing in, in you know this industry is because my friend and I Allie Ward we made a, mm-hmm. a chicken McNuggetini cocktail <laughs> video and then it was like Food Network was like can you do this like so I was already like you could do fucking any and I'll just yep. do like I had like a vintage dress thing and I had a blog and I just was like constantly trying to get something going and then we did my favorite murder and that fucking hit and it's yeah. like who the and fuck? all of it and all of it builds up and and you can look back and go oh that was all part of a right. great plan but I don't even know what that plan is yeah. when I'm in the middle of it you know and that's that's the thing about like about just staying in it like endurance yeah. and like still and still going as opposed to just like thinking thinking the opposite way of going okay this will be my thing yeah because you it comes from a different place I mean when you were putting together talk show the game show live on stage you weren't thinking okay this will be what I'll sell to TV yeah. and this will be my own show you're like no this is an idea that I have that's going to fill a really great creative space and I think it's going to be a lot of fun and yeah. that's what people respond to like because I'm assuming that you, not unlike me, get a fair number of little gay boys being like, can I have coffee with you and talk yes. to you about yes. how yes. comedy works? Absolutely. And then what they want to hear is, as you were saying, path to being famous. And the thing of like, in, like en- enjoy being good. Enjoy the yep. things that you do. Absolutely. It feels like a non-answer when some kid from Ohio is like, but how do I pay my rent with that? Mm. Um, but it really is the only feedback loop. It's the only thing you can really... And I always feel like sometimes when I when I do have coffee with with some of these people that I am just stealing a cup of coffee from them because you know I'm like I don't really know what to say and the longer I've been doing it the less I know sometimes yeah. I'm like I, I honestly would I, I think 10 years ago I would have given you a, a better plan than I even know now but it you know it is I, I do think it's like you know you look back and you're like I used to when people would say that to me there was part of me going there's something you're not telling me and I'm like <laughs> no it's really not that it is it is you know you have to be willing to 
be poor for a long time and maybe have a hard time paying your rent for a while and have and a day job have a like day job hate. don't be an idiot yeah. and make you a know. fool of yourself periodically yes. have ideas that don't work right <laughs> or that Absolutely. three people show up for yeah. yep and you know because you just you truly have no idea how you know everything that I have had success with I, I think about like how did that start and I'm like oh it was just this crazy idea I had that I tried I had a hundred others that didn't hit. Yeah. yeah. I would never, I can't tell you what of mine, I didn't know when it was just an idea at the time, but if I didn't do them because I didn't think they were valid or worth it, I would never have done them. Yeah. So it's true. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard because in other professions and other worlds, there is a much clearer path in telling people how to do this. And I would tell you like, you know, you have to do, you know, and then the other thing I always say to people is like, learn how to do it. Go to school. Go to class. Yeah. You know, they're always the people that are like, you know, Diane Weiss to bring him up again. Like, I think we were talking about her before we started recording, but she's never had an acting class. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and that is a unicorn inside of a shamrock. But most people like learn how to do this. Go yeah. to go to school. It is fascinating working on sitcoms where there are these people like who are on this path to being writers, like writers assistants and script coordinators and stuff, who are on this path to like getting to sit down at a table and then have to pitch, pitch jokes. Who are doing nothing of what they are doing professionally is preparing them to pitch jokes. And I see these because I work on a show where those people are girls because I always end up working on girl shows, mm -hmm. and it is like this thing of like there's a ticking clock here like where like you need to be in UCB or, or Brown Lake's yes. classes so bad right now yes. because you, like there's going to come a point in time when you get to sit down at that table and if you can't do it you'll get pushed out of the system. Absolutely. And the, the amount of people you make connections with at those classes Absolutely. are huge. That's who you're going to end up working yeah. with because the two of you connect and make a fucking thing. And and learning how to collaborate yeah. and learning, I mean, and truly learning like how a, how a group works yeah. versus just like what you come up with on your own. Great. But how can you take somebody else's idea and add to it? Add to it and, you know, but as a stand-up, the thing that always horrifies me about your improv world <laughs> is that there is this council of people who decide your fate, mm -hmm. and you have to be playing politics with them, where stand-up is so much looser, and it is a world where yes. you don't have classes, which makes it kind of harder for women um, and anyone who is not like a straight dude, Yes, um, that because it's more subtle social games, mm -hmm. but it is always a thing of like, if one scene doesn't like you, you can go to another, and I always fear that about right improv. right well and i think like the um the lesson in that is like uh, as somebody who has gone through and done a, and a bunch of those circles you know it's like finding your church for lack of a better way of saying it and you're like you'll find your group of people you know if you if you if you love it and it you know and it genuinely like the problem is that the people who go to one place and their style is just so different from mm -hmm. that what that place is about and as a as someone who teaches at the groundlings i have students and i and i and i say to them i'm i'm not giving you lip service you need to go to ucb because i actually also work at ucb and your style would be so much better suited at ucb you could be the funniest person in the room and you're going to get up and and bang heads against that but the weird thing is that like the last thing people want is to see you playing the politics so you actually, 
you're better off like them not knowing who you are at all and just showing up on stage and doing your work than the person who goes to all the parties mm-hmm. and hangs out after all the shows because that person has the hardest time because they've created a weird social idea of who they are and it just is as people are they're like oh that person's at all the shows now if they're also really funny or, or people really like them it's great but if they're like figuring out who they are or they're just an oddness there like you're better off not doing anything and it, and it's but I, I, I do think like in the stand-up world there are those stand-up comics that everybody just loves having on their shows and then there are those people that people are like never right yeah. I mean it's the same in that way um, but I know it's it is it is so creepy how much of a popularity contest it can feel like sometimes but then at the same time I don't know. I mean, I would, I would, I would just, I just know like how at the groundlings there, there, there's a lot when people. It's noted when people. It's like when someone's like around too much. It's yeah. Like <laughs> because the, because we because the assumption is, and I don't even say we because I'm not in the 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 main company of the groundlings, but the assumption is that that person is maybe not good and they might be wonderful but if they don't know their work if you only know them socially first you're yeah. like oh they're trying to work a different angle they're about everything but the work right and and so the so and that's that shoots talented people in the foot who think they need to play that game right you know like the people that you're like they're actually really good and i try to say to people like you don't maybe need to hang out all the time just so that you know <laughs> um and because there are so many communities now in the sketch world. It's a very different vibe mm-hmm. at all of the places than it used to be because th- there's no longer that weird sense of like, oh, the growlings are the keys, the keepers of the kingdom. Where it used to be that way when I when I moved out here 18 years ago, like that's where you and you are in LA. That's where you would yeah. do sketch and improv. And now there are so many places, and there's it, it's much healthier. I think now that there's so much more. Um, yeah, there's like a know. sect for everyone, every type right. of exactly. person. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Georgia, what do you want to... Okay, you guys yeah. want to hear nipple piercing or pot rice crispy Disneyland? Those both sound great. I will say we've had a lot of pot. drug stories. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm going to say nipple piercing. Yes. Okay. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I took my mom's car for the first time driving alone. And, and she knew you were taking it? Yeah, it was okay. uh, I drove from drove from Orange County to Los Angeles by myself and I went to the UCLA Book Festival. Uh-huh. And the reason I went <laughs> was <laughs> yeah, was to meet uh, Ray Bradbury. Oh wow. Sci-fi writer. Whoa. So I had been on drugs a lot before that period and kind of got off of them with his help because I was so obsessed with his books I just stopped wanting to go out and hanging out and I just I was obsessed with his books and it kind of I think it saved my life in a lot of ways Um, and so I was going he was going to be there you know uh, lecturing and I was just like I have to go to this I have to go meet him and thank him Mm -hmm. so I get to the hall where he's speaking the guy at the door is like sorry it's full you can't come in and oh. I was just like, 16-year-old Georgia was like, my mom's in there and she has my purse. Can I just go get it from her? <laughs> he was like, yeah. And I just fucking ran in and got a seat. And then he, you know, two hours of, of a lecture it was amazing. It was my whole mind was blown. And then afterwards, I went on stage when he was being interviewed, and I just handed him a letter, and it was like a three-page letter of like how he helped me. Oh my god! And then afterwards, I was so 
buzzing and so high and so happy not high high but yeah. you know um, that I drove to Melrose Avenue and told a piercer that I was 18 and got my nipple pierced to uh, commemorate to commemorate the day oh my god yeah and how long uh, do you still have it pierced no no uh, okay. I took them out a long time ago okay. I, I was, was a, yeah I was gonna assume that you didn't but how long did you have it how did you have it pierced I had it pierced for a few years I mean it was cute I have tiny tits and so it was just like this cute little thing but I know I'm an adult now, and I I would never yeah. have that. I would think that at a certain point. Now, did you have any like um, issues with it? Was it ever, or was it only just a? No, yeah. it was fine. Yeah, yeah. The idea of an infected nipple is just <laughs> very disturbing, <laughs> terrifying. No. So why why that? Why not a tattoo? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I, I never had. I had a homemade tattoo, but. I think I had wanted to get my nipple pierced anyway. No, I think it was a last minute thought. I don't know. It's just like, I just had this sudden idea to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was hidden so my mom wouldn't see it. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And also that's this like sort of milestone, right? Yeah. Like just to get to. And what was your tattoo of? I, my best friend and I, when we were 14, carved each other's initials and <gasps> in our legs with like a pris- like prison tattoo oh style. Oh my God. I know. I was a real Wow. That was when I was on drugs. And then two weeks later, Ray Bradbury sent me a care package. <gasps> oh, that's lovely. And that was like, oh, I told him awesome. I wanted to be a writer. And it just, he sent me like Zen and the Art of Writing with like, God, Onward Georgia was his like personalization. I mean, it was like, it was oh, gorgeous. Oh my God. That is so great. Yeah. And what of his what of his uh, writings is, is your favorite? I mean, I love Martian Chronicles so much. Mm-hmm. It's just so perfectly written. I mean, I guess Fahrenheit four fifty one is a little timely, right? Of course, Terror, I know. Yeah, scarily so. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever read any of his books. I remember reading a lot of his short stories. Yeah, and seeing him on so many things, like he was always like on TV. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wasn't he always on like? sci-fi shows and stuff and so I was like he was always kind of around doing sto- he would tell st- his own stories and yeah. stuff yeah. yeah and then Fahrenheit 451 was always a thing that people would do monologues from <laughs> oh, like, really? in like high school <laughs> uh, like drama competitions people would always do and I don't remember what it was but I would be like this is from Fahrenheit 451 and you're like oh god this again <laughs> like getting botched oh, because god. I think people were like this is you know yeah. important and so how um how long were you into the the drugs and stuff in the in just the a couple years, mm-hmm. like from thirteen, and then I was in rehab. And oh wow! So you really were yeah into it. Okay. So, then, so how does a thirteen year old get exposed to these things? How I does mean, it begin? Yeah, I think it's just having no parental supervision, not uh-huh. fitting in, and wanting to find something else to like to identify themselves with, you know, uh-huh. and just falling in with a bad crowd. You and know? being thirteen, I mean, like I think. Yeah. If, that's like so young to think about like when you're doing that stuff you're not at all thinking beyond no it's crazy and like I'm a pretty normal person now and I think most people wouldn't assume that of Mm -hmm. me and I just can't believe I got out clean I got out unscathed yeah Yeah, well that's I mean a lot of people go through those periods and go through those things but I mean to go all the way through to the rehab stage that's that's pretty that's major and that's, that's really great 
And why Ray Bradbury? I mean, other than, you know. I just always love Scythe. Well, actually, no. One of my teachers in eighth grade, I think she knew I wasn't doing well, like kind of fucked up. Uh-huh. And she handed me, and I always loved reading, and she handed me a book by Ray Bradbury and was like, I think you'll like this, like on the download. Oh, that's so cool. And I did, and I just like changed my fucking life. Yeah. Mrs. Taylor, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> she was an English teacher. Isn't it just great? I mean, school is such an important thing to me like I was the opposite like I was Mr. Overachiever and I was such a good kid yeah I mean read the Velvet Rage like I was that one I mean I was you know you know I was like oh I'm gonna this is this is something I can be really good at and I'm gonna prove you all that I'm a good person and I'm not gonna deal with you know my sexuality at all and you know (laughs) and so I I lived and died by my teachers and and the the teachers that I hated I hated so much yeah. I had so much more drama in my life at school than I had at home really in that yeah. way of like and the teachers that got me and saw things in me and and I'm sure there was part of it too that like you were saying it was on the down low when she handed you this book yeah there's a thing about like I see you yeah in a really cool way that you're like I don't feel like anybody else really sees me yeah because I had family that always loved me, but there was so much with me that were like, we don't know what he's doing up there. We don't know what he's reading. We don't know what he's into. <laughs> and when I had those teachers that were like, you know, you need to read this. Yeah, or and, see you're struggling somehow. Or right. Or just being like, I, you know, I, I know who you are and I think you would really, you know. Yeah, special. Embrace that. Drew, what was the texture of the teachers who hated you? The um, I think that I had the teachers who were who were almost threatened by because I would I would act out a lot and I, I, uh-huh. it was a big deal to me to make people laugh at school because yeah. I did not make my family laugh and to this day yeah. they kind of look at me like what are you what yeah and so but I could make my and was it was and it was my deflector from being bullied that I could I could always make people laugh and so I would and I had this group of really strong friends from like junior high through high school. And I and and so the teachers who were threatened by my sense of humor were they would be they would they would be really cruel in a way of like I I had a teacher one time send me to the principal's office to get like post-its for her like like on an errand. And while I was gone, she was like, so what's wrong with Drew (gasps) to the class? With all of my friends oh my in there, God. and like, what's really, what's really going on there? She's like, and and I think it was like she was, she felt threatened, like her authority was threatened. Like I sort of took over the room wow. when I was in the room, you know, and things like that. And of course, I found out immediately because yeah. I mean, my, my friends couldn't wait to tell me. They yeah. were like, "What is that about?" My mom, you know, was ridiculous, tore her up. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it was a yeah. There was there was always a sense of, and there was a, a um in seventh grade. I had a teacher who, um, went to we went to the same church in small town North Carolina, and she was the she was the wacky eccentric. She taught <laughs> language arts, and everybody's like thought that we would language be language arts. I know, like not yeah. Don't call it English or reading. You know, language arts like so magical. <laughs> And everybody thought that she and I would fit, like it would be this glove fit situation, and it was the opposite, because she was a she was a, a, an idiot, and she was, and there was no teaching happening. She would just, she would just kind of, um, it was all fluff. And I saw it, and I was in seventh grade, which was my welcome to the dollhouse year, where <laughs> I would measure my good and bad days I would get home and go okay I wasn't called a fag today so that was a good day that was that was my barometer was was I called a fag today and that's it 
and I was never beat up. I was it was never anything physical. It was all verbal, but it was it was really hard that year. And and I had her that year and I would go into her class and she would just it would just be bullshit hour with her. So I would put my head down on my desk and just like either sleep or just try to pretend to not be there because I was I we didn't have to do any work for her. And at church one day, she told my mom that she thought I was on drugs. <gasps> and I was like the good kid who had never seen drugs, let alone, you know. Yeah. And, and and I remember like for like a month, like my mom told me later, my mom and dad told me later that like they were like checking me out and like really worried <laughs> and like, you know. And they just realized like, no, this woman is an asshole. Mm-hmm. And she's using, and she's at church, like totally going outside mm-hmm. of you know, and being like, you know, I think this is what's going on with Drew. And I was like, no, I just, I'm just smelling your bullshit <laughs> and you don't know how to handle it. Yeah. You know? And, um, yeah. So, I mean, there was, there were, there were quite a few teachers that would, you know, that, yeah. And then in the same year, I would go, like, the next period, I could go into another teacher, teacher's classroom and, and do everything I could to have them love me. And I would go above and beyond because I wanted, you know, to learn, like I, I was that, you know. What flavor of Jesusy were you raised? <laughs> Presbyterian. Okay, so very mild, That's chill, right? Very yeah. chill yeah. for North Carolina. Uh, sure. For North Carolina, yeah. yes. Um, it was not. I have to say that to this day, I don't have. I have a lot of hangups about church because of things like that, because of the horrible people that call themselves Christians. But I have very little hangups about Jesus and Christianity itself. Hmm. Like I don't have problems with it at all. There was a lot of people who were raised a lot more extreme. Here's the thing that fascinates me about being called faggot in grade school is your peer group is just trying to label a thing that they've been taught by popular culture and you are. Right. And the entire problem is just your parents telling you, well, if you stopped acting like that, they wouldn't do this. Or teachers being like, we had this amazing conversation in my fourth grade class where Mrs. Sanger told everyone that they needed to stop making fun of me for being fat. And I was like, they never really said anything about that. Oh my God. Like it was, but we like, couldn't you like, you know, in the mid eighties in rural Northern California, that never could have been, a conversation and it is just I mean it's just well and it's 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 also so it's so crazy because you don't even think like I, I'm like in seventh grade I'm like I didn't even think I was gay it was yeah. I was like I and I I had no idea what that even was and it wasn't like you were doing anything uh-huh. like it was like you're effeminate and that's and that's different from how and and again everybody's getting something and yeah. that you know and it is like what Welcome to the Dollhouse taps into so brilliantly and those things that you know we're like everyone is it's just a terrible time Ugh, it's the worst but there are things that some people outgrow and there are things that something thing, there's an essence in you that other people see before you see in yourself and you're trying to figure out who you are yeah. and you're going through puberty or not I wasn't I was such a late bloomer I didn't start till a couple of years after that so I was I was just I had no idea why I was being attacked like that. Well, kids, you know, I don't know if it's the same today because they have all those bullying rules, but it's like any little thing that you're different that is different about you and these fucking assholes. Maybe it's just the 80s that mm-hmm. like 
would attack you for. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a confident person or if you don't think you're good either, you know, you'll just go with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that happened to me. I think that happens to a lot of people where it's yeah. just like, you know. Well, you normalize it yeah. really quickly because it just becomes like, because I think back to that and I'm like, at the time, I didn't, I, I mean, it sounds so tragic my, that year in my life. But at the time, it was just, that's life. That's yeah. how it is. And then for me, eighth grade, I became really popular. And I was popular all through high school. And so it was like, for me, I'm lucky that it was only one year yeah. that I really felt so much of that, like, sort of pressure. Because people, I sort of, I, you know, it was partly because I, I was funny and partly because, you know, I've said this before on the show that I convinced people that I was possessed by the devil. <laughs> Because that's how you get people scared of you. In that what area. does that mean? I pretended to have this um, uh, evil being inside of oh me. Oh my god! And I would pretend to be possessed. And my friends thought true. it was hilarious. It might be true to this day. <laughs> I've got a bunch of gay demons running through my skin. But I used to pretend because I would make my friends laugh. But there would be people that were genuinely scared of it because they believe in that stuff. And you realize, like, when people believe in like Satan worship. Oh, you can get away with so much fun <laughs> stuff because you just act like you know you're you're the devil, and they're like, oh, we got to get away from that because that he could jump into me. Oh my god! You know, and um, it was I just realized that I don't you know, and that was my saving grace. <laughs> I think know? drugs were a little bit like that for me because I was picked on a lot, and then it was like, oh, she's bad. Like I became bad. You know, I would do bad things, and I would do drugs, and I think it was and hang out with like bad people, uh-huh. and I think it was just like. Leave me alone. Uh-huh. I'm going to be this bad person uh-huh. just so you'll stop fucking picking on me. Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy what we like self-harm yeah. to just to get people to leave you alone? It's yeah. just a certain it's 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 really it's really crazy. But I'm also grateful for it to this day because, oh, my God, people who've never been picked on or ostracized or pathetic when imagine being happy <laughs> imagine so being happy you have no I don't stories? understand it I just don't get it when I meet people whose parents are normal or even still married I'm like oh my god what is that what like? is that what tell me about that yeah well, you know, you get people that, you know, or they, or they, that's when people fall apart in their 20s or even later, maybe yeah. because they've had nothing bad happen to them and then yeah. something right. goes wrong and they just can't. I'm almost glad deal I did drugs it. that young because all, all my friends in their 20s started doing coke and shit. And I was like, I'm good. I don't that's, need it. Yeah, that's my brother. My brother was very experimental in, the, in his early teens. That's, and now yeah. he's like the most, he would be like, no way would he get yeah. involved in it. And he's like, sells insurance now so it's like you know that's the thing that you know you, you get over that at a certain point I, yeah. for me even when I went to college everybody was like smoking pot for the first time and I had already been busted for smoking pot like in, I was already in the newspaper for smoking pot <laughs> so I was like we're good yeah. I don't, you know I'm good on that so anyway yeah. well I think we're out of time <laughs> on that note <laughs> <laughs> isn't, that a, isn't that a wonderful way to end well and that was time. that was wonderful. I thought we were just getting going. I oh, I know, I know, and we're like, we're ready. I know. Well, we can, you know, pick it up where we left off next time. I it guess was delightful, <laughs> was delightful. You guys are Thank both you. wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having for me. For giving up your money for for driving across town to you know to no, lush and gorgeous Burbank. <laughs> um, okay, I want to thank my guests, Georgia Hardstark and Guy Branham, for being on the show this week. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Feral Audio